to In the Word with Pastor Don Haskins, where we open up the Bible to see what God's Word says and how it might apply to our lives. Our prayer is that you allow Jesus to change you from the inside out. And now, today's lesson. Second Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we read, Paul writing to the Corinthians, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have defrauded no one. I don't say this to condemn For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts and inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comfort us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now, I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so, our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore... I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Father, here we have a passage of basically a pastor to a church, his church, that he ministered to for about a year and a half. And just the dialogue between the two. A slip up, a trip up, a falling of the church, a pastor correcting them, fearing that he would lose them because of his correction, only to be rejoicing 
that they took his correction and sought the Lord and sought God's way and repented. And Paul was refreshed. The pastor was refreshed. And so, Lord, I I lift up this day's study. And I pray, God, that you would comfort our hearts even in the midst of it all. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make sense of this passage here today. That we would walk out of here today not just hearing a story, not just sitting and listening to a Bible study, but that this Bible study, that this time of getting together, this gathering together of the saints, this assembling together, will produce what it is intended to do, and that is to cause us to grow, to cause us to to fall in love with you even all the more, to cause us to, to have our lives more in line with the men and the women that you desire us to be. God, that we would make you proud, that we would make you happy, that we would cause you to be content in your heart towards us as you see that our hearts are for you and we desire what you desire, even though it may make us uncomfortable at times, even though it may go against what it is that that we have done in our life. May we, Lord, be more concerned with what you think and what you desire for our lives than what we think or what others think. May we love you more at the end of this study than we do even right now. May we understand you more at the end of this study than we do right now. May you change our lives for you to be more fashioned into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ in these next few moments that we have together. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul starts out this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 saying, Therefore, anytime, gang, you know this, don't you? Every time we come to a therefore, what do we do? Huh? Pay attention? What? Yeah, see what it's there for. Yeah, that's right. Go back and see what it's there for. When you come to a therefore in Scripture, go back to find out what it's there for. You know? And that's always a good, a good you know, reminder to you and a reminder to me that when we come to a place in Scripture. One of the greatest therefores in Scripture, I think, is it is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11 you know, it talks about all of the men and the women who died in the faith, waiting for the promise of Jesus. You know, they had longed for seeing the coming Messiah, and yet they had not seen him. And it went all the way back to the time of Adam, all the way through the, saint, or the, the, the men and women who died in the faith, looking forward to Jesus' coming. And they were willing to be sacrificed. Some sawn in two, you know, some tortured, some just brutally beaten and killed. Families ripped apart simply because they weren't going to deny the Lord, or deny the promised Messiah who was coming. And, and so they died in the faith, all looking forward to the time when Jesus would come on the scene, die, um, be buried and raise again from the dead, thus releasing them and, and, and taking them, I believe, into heaven at that time. That's for another study. But here's the thing. They were looking forward to that time. 
Whereas we are right now looking backwards. What they were looking forward to, we look backwards to. They were looking forward to the cross. We look backwards to the cross. We all look at it for the same purpose, though. We look at it for redemption. We look at it for forgiveness. We look at it for relationship. Okay? That's what we do. So we do that because there's no other reason for life other than to live for Christ. To live for the Lord. You were created by God. Therefore, what were we created for? Can you imagine... uh, you know, a, a computer, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all those fellas, you know, that, that, you know, built the computer. You imagine if they spent all this time to build these computers. Here, I have one of them in my hand, this iPad. Can you imagine if I used this? Well, I have a nail that I need to put into this piece of wood and I use this thing to beat it into the, into the wood, beat the nail into the wood. Would I be using this for the purpose in which it was created? No, I'm not. Now, would it work? Eh, probably not too well, but I'm not getting the most out of what it was created for. Would, would you agree with that statement? Same kind of a thing with our bodies. Same thing with our lives. You and I were created for something. And sometimes we find ourselves trying to find fulfillment in beating nails into wood. Not what we were intended, not what we were designed to be, not what we were designed to do, not what we were intended to to be and what we were intended to be created for. We misuse what it is that that God had intended for us. So we were created to look forward to a time where we were at peace with the Lord. And, and so here's the thing. We, to have a relationship with God, to live for God. And when we don't live for God, we're not being, we, we aren't being used the way that we should. We're not putting the updates in us on a week by week basis you know oftentimes you get a computer and you constantly get these these updates sometimes that it's probably not a great illustration but sometimes those updates don't work too well do they sometimes they really mess up your system i know that i've gone through that a few times but here's the thing An update for you and I is a refreshment on a day-by-day basis where we get into the Word and we allow it to just refresh our souls, to, to, to get into the Word, to find out, Lord, what is it that you would desire out of my life? What is it that you want from me today? What is it, how is it that I can be used to my ultimate today? And, and therein lies a statement that is a proper statement. It's a proper command, if you will. Typing in the proper command on the computer of your life. Saying, Lord, what would you have me to do today? That's a good statement for your morning's ambition. And for my morning's ambition. We were created for that. And so these disciples, or these, these, these men and women, they lived longing for the Messiah. We live looking back at when the Messiah came on the scene and gave us life. And here's the thing. What happened to us is that after Christ came, we began to 
become complacent. We have a tendency to become a little lazy. We have the sad problem of, of not remembering why we live our lives on a day-by-day basis. And so the writer of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, he wrote that therefore in, in chapter uh, uh, 12 of Hebrews. He says, I want you to remember all of those people who died looking forward to the promise of the Messiah. He says, therefore, seeing that we're surrounded by so great, great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us or slows us down. Everything that is holding us back to being everything that God wants us to be. Let us lay those things back. Why? Because we're surrounded by those who were living, looking forward to it. That's what that therefore is there for, right? Therefore seeing that we're surrounded by all these people who live for the Lord, live for God's plan, live for the coming Messiah, and they sacrifice their life for it. Many of them did. We have these as examples. And so therefore, since we're surrounded by them, let us lay aside the, the, the laziness. Let us lay aside the, the, the things that ensnare us. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's things that are legal, things that are okay. You know, it's not always just sin that slows us down. Sometimes it's permitted things that we get slowed down by because they take us away what our, from what our true calling really is. I liken it often unto, you know, a, a racer, you know, a, a runner. In, in the Olympics, for instance... They're going to run a race. And they go out there and they, they, they put on, you know, two and a half pound ankle weights. Have any of you guys ever put those things on? I used to wear those uh, back when I was in high school to make my speed get faster as I practiced for football and trained for football. I would always run and I'd wear them all the time. I'd run in them. I'd sprint in them. I would, I would practice in them at times. And what ended up happening is it built up different muscles in my legs. And you've got to use your imagination here, okay? But here's the thing. It built up a lot of things where when I was not real fast coming into high school, but I got pretty fast because I diligently did that. Now, it was legal to do that. It was okay to do that. But here's the thing. When I got into a game, the referees wouldn't have said, hey, you got to take those ankle weights off. But why would I ever go into a football game with two and a half pound ankle weights on each leg? I'd be running like with like 50 pounds on my legs, you know, just because that's you get tired and you won't be fast and you're hindering yourself. And, and, and it's that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Seeing that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, therefore... Let us lay aside every weight, ankle weights, and even the sins that so easily slow us down or ensnare us. 
And let us then look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, when he ran his race, when he had a, you know, a, a tape at the end of the, of the track that he was running towards, That when he ran his race, let us look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, who endured the cross, who for the joy that was set before him, I'm sorry, who for the joy that was set before him, that, that tape that was set before him, the joy was you and I. You understand that? Jesus lived his life for you and I. I believe that when he was on the cross, I believe he was... He, listen, this isn't a big jump for me. I believe that Jesus was God in, the human, in human flesh. I believe when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was in the flesh hanging on the cross for you and I. He could not. A man could not pay for your sin. It had to be God himself. You remember... Abraham, when he tried to, when he was offering Isaac on the altar, God told him to offer Isaac on the altar to sacrifice his son. And as Isaac was about to bring the dagger down upon his son, the Lord stopped Abraham and he says, Abraham, stop. I was seeing if you would live for me. And I see you will. There's nothing that you won't do for me. It blesses my heart, Abraham. But here's the thing. I'm not asking you to kill your kid. Listen, I need a sacrifice, but the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. Not for himself, but he will provide himself a sacrifice. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Go get that ram. Bring it over here. You put that thing up on the altar, and that becomes your sacrifice. The lamb. John said in John chapter 1, when Jesus was John the Baptist... He was out there baptizing the hundreds that were coming out to him to be baptized, if not even into the thousands that were coming out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jesus happened to be with the disciples walking along the, the bank of the river as he was coming towards the group that was being baptized. And John stops what he's doing, hopefully not in the middle of baptizing. Hopefully the person was still above the water. But John says, look, look. On the shoreline, behold. What did he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right on, Ross. That's exactly what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here's the thing. Jesus was the Lamb. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 14, I believe it is, that when we look upon Jesus, He will look as a Lamb that has been slaughtered from the foundations of the world. Okay? So Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the ram on Mount Moriah where Abraham was going to offer his son Isaac and God says, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. The ram. He put the symbol of the ram upon the, upon the, the altar. The lamb upon the altar. And he sacrificed that. But it was something that was, it was a picture of something that was to come. And it was Jesus himself that would be upon the altar for you and I the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we will always, here's the thing, we will always remember His sacrifice. The Bible tells us that we will have new bodies in heaven. I will have more hair and I will look a whole lot more fit. 
And here's the thing. <laughs> Nancy's trying to get me to go to a gym so that I can get Bert to go with me. That's her way of getting Bert to go get, get in shape. We might take you up on that, Nancy. Here's the thing. <laughs> well, that's what we do. That's what we do. That's, 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 You've got to have protein before you go and work out. <laughs> um, oh, goodness. And, and so, so, goodness, that made me forget where I was going with that. What's that? Yes. It, oh, yes. In heaven, in heaven, we're gonna. I'm gonna have more hair, and I'm gonna look more fit. And here's the thing. I don't know if you realize this, but what's Jesus gonna look like in heaven? Oh, he's gonna look glorious, isn't he? You know what? The Bible says that in heaven he will bear the scars that he paid for you and I. We'll always remember the Lord. A lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world. We'll look upon him. We're going to have these awesome bodies. We look upon Jesus and he's going to be pierced. Even when he comes back to the earth, the second coming, the Jews will, will ask him, say, they'll say, Hey, what are these wounds that you have in your hands and in your feet? Book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah says. And he's, he will say, he will declare to them in that day, These are the wounds that I received while in the house of my friends. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He was beaten, he was brutalized for you and I. We get our glorious bodies. He will, we will always remember him. We will always see him as a as a the one who took our 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 wounds upon himself to give us life. I consider that love. I, I consider that a great love. Therefore, seeing that we have somebody who did it for us, now let's go do it. And so, you know, here. In our passage today, when you have a therefore, that therefore meant a lot there in Hebrews, didn't it? You didn't know you were going to get two different Bible studies today. Hebrews chapters twelve, chapters eleven and twelve. We just got a, a quick little rundown of that that passage, only focusing on the word therefore. Well, here we have a therefore here. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and it starts off here, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so here Paul says, therefore, therefore what? When a therefore comes, you always go back and see what it's there for, and we go back just a verse or two. There in 16... He's talking about, uh, you know, our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit, our temple of God. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. This is chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. 
I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, he says in verse 17, listen, gang, come out from among them and be separate, said the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Almighty. What he's saying is stay out of the world, man. Don't don't marry the world. Don't don't be the world. Don't live in don't live amongst the world as 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 the world. You don't have to do what the world does. The world is is going to lead you down the wrong path. There's three things that we have against us that is going to keep us away from living a holy life. And that is Satan. That's pretty easy, right? That's pretty obvious. The second would be the world. And the third would be your own flesh. Those three things, if you could overcome those three things, you can live a holy life before the Lord. And here's the thing. That's why God has placed the Holy Spirit in you to where you can withstand those three things that are kind of going to come against you and I every single day of our lives. Gangs, we're, 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 we're getting bombarded by the pressures of these three things that are against us at all times. The devil, the world, and our flesh. And, and what Paul's saying, he's, he's uh, 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 quoting, I was think, trying to think of that word, he's quoting Jeremiah and Isaiah, saying, hey, come out from among them. From among who? From among the world. Be separate from the world. You know, that challenge should be to you and I as Christians is that when the world looks upon us or when the church looks upon us or when anybody looks upon us, can they see a difference between us and the world? What's the church supposed to be doing? Much like what Israel was supposed to be doing with the rest of the world, right? God didn't choose Israel because they were greater than anybody. They were smarter than anybody. They were more, you know, appealing than any other nation, than any other race of people. God chose them because they were small. And they were in desperate need. They were in desperate need. And God looked upon Israel and upon the Jew and said, I'm going to place my hand upon them. And I will speak with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And the only way to heaven is through the direction that I'm going to give to you. Now, some of us might look at that and go, well, you know what? God's a racist. And I would say, you're right. He is. You're right. That's a horrible thing to say today, isn't it? Are you saying that God doesn't like? No, I didn't say that God doesn't like. Are you saying that God doesn't love people of other races? That he doesn't like people of other races? No, because that's not true. The Bible says that God loves the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Well, then what are you saying? That doesn't sound like God's a racist. Oh, look at the whole Testament. It was a picture of something even to come. That tiny nation of Israel was to be a a nation led by God. So that tiny nation being led by God would be blessed by God, would be living for God, and that 
all of the rest of the world would look upon that tiny nation that was being so blessed by God that the rest of the world, the rest of the nations would say, why are you guys so blessed? And it would give you now the opportunity, Israel, to say, oh, it's not in us. It's in the God we serve. Hey, you can have the same God also. Do you understand? Israel was supposed to be the evangelists. They were the ones that were supposed to minister to the rest of the world. And say, we have a great God that we serve. But what happened is that the, wor- the devil, the world, and their flesh got in the way, didn't it? For it wasn't very long after. God would send them prophets. He sent them prophets. And, and for a while, they followed the Lord according to what the prophets had to say. But after a while, all the other nations kind of caught up and they all started having their kings and their royalty and all of the different stuff. And the next thing you know is that the Israelites, the Jews, begin to look around at all the surrounding nations and go, you know what, they have kings. And man, I really dig on those crowns that all the rest of the world has. The crowns and the royal dresses and the, the royal garments and, and the palaces. And, and everybody goes to them to, to, to find, you know, the law. And, and everybody goes to them for protection. And everybody goes to them to, to, you know, for disagreements and things like that. And the king... Man, when he comes out, oh, the whole nation comes together and claps and and roars with approval. And they say, hey, that's our king. And they came to Samuel. You remember, you just had to go back and look at the book of Samuel. He was the last prophet that led Israel. Oh, there were other prophets that, that influenced the kings that came along. But Samuel was the last prophet that was being led, that was the last time that they were a theocracy, if you will. That, that Israel was a theocracy, or the Jews had a theocracy where God was the one that was directing the people. It was what God had designed in the first place. And they came to Samuel, and Samuel was getting old, and they, it's not like they didn't like Samuel. They kind of liked Samuel, but they didn't like who was going to come up after him. They said, Samuel, you're going to go away one day and we're not going to have anybody to really listen to. And so here's the thing. We've all come together and we've looked at all the other nations and here's what we want. We want a king just like all the other nations. And Samuel goes, what are you talking about? No, that's not the way that God wants it. No, we want a king. All the other, all the other nations have kings. That's not what God's design was. Samuel goes back and he cries out to the Lord. He goes, God, do you know what they've done? As if he needed to, God needed any information. Yes, God knew what, he, what they were doing. He goes back and he's weeping before the Lord and he goes, God, they've rejected me. And what did God say to Samuel? You remember what he said? Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. They want a king to give them direction. They don't want a God to give them direction. They want what everybody else in the world wants. They want they want a leader in their world to lead them. They don't want the one who created the world to lead them. And gang, that's was a big downfall for for the Jews. Now, listen, lest you think that I'm down on the Jews, listen, they blew it. It doesn't mean that I don't love them. My goodness, I've been to Israel twice. I love the Jews. You'll find no greater friend of the Jews than this church. We love them. I love them. 
I hope you love him. I don't know. I'm called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and I do. I still believe what God said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. I am blessing Israel. I love it. I love Israel. I love going over there. It's awesome. But I will say they messed up. But here's the thing. You've messed up, and I've messed up. The thing is, Israel was supposed to be the light in the world. They were supposed to be the example. They were supposed to be the ones that God was blessing, and the rest of the world would look and go, Hey, wow, look at you. We want what you have. And Israel, God gave them the ability to say, Hey, do you want what we have? You can have what we have in God. In God. Our God is the one who provides for us. Our God is the one who protects us. Our God is the one who says that goes to go out or to come in. Our God is the one who directs our life. Our God, our God, our God. That's what Israel was to be saying to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world could say, oh, I don't believe that. But all that they'd have to do is watch for any amount of time. And sure enough, they're going to find out, yes, God is their God. And there is no other God like him. Hey, all you got to do is read the book of Daniel. You get into the book of Daniel, you find out that the the greatest and mightiest king upon the face of the earth, the last true known world dictator, historically, that this world has ever had, his name was Nebuchadnezzar, right? You know him. King of Babylon, which is in Iraq. And so in Iraq, you have this king that was the last dictator that this world has ever seen where his word was law and he could change the law at his own whim he could make a law and if you didn't follow that law he could have you beheaded or killed or whatever incarcerated or thrown into a into a into a fire which he did do didn't he and the very next day he could change the law and say "Ah, i don't want to do that law anymore let's do it a different way He had that ability. Not that he did it that way, but here's the thing. He had the ability to do that because that's what a dictator can do. And here's the most powerful man in the world and we might look at that and go, man, there's no way that we could ever reach them, that God could ever reach such a wicked man who took over Israel and laid it waste and took their kids, many of their kids captive, prisoner, and took them and separated them from their families and brought them back into Babylon, far away from their homeland. Which is what the book of Daniel is all about. Daniel was a young man who was taken from Israel after the siege and the captivity from evil King Nebuchadnezzar. God could never reach a man like that. But here, I am convinced... Again, I don't have time to get into this today, but I'm convinced that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because there's nobody that is unreachable for the Lord. There came a time in Nebuchadnezzar's life where he said, you know what? There is no God like the God of the Jews. There's no God like him. He is the greatest God. He is the king of kings. He is the God of gods. There is no one greater. That's Nebuchadnezzar. That was a heathen, evil, ruthless, worse than Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein, worse than any evil dictator that is out there today, 
That was Nebuchadnezzar and God grabbed a hold of his life to a point where he said, man, he's God. That was what the Israelites were supposed to be. And so even as I've just taken this time and we look at that and we go, wow, the Jews kind of blew it, didn't they? They were supposed to be the example so that everybody could live and, and watch and see what was happening in the Jews' life and then desire the God that they had. Man, you guys blew it big time, man. I'd hate to be you guys. Well, I would just say, I look at the Christians today and that's exactly what we're supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be people who are following Christ so that the rest of the world would look at us and they'd say, hey, how come you're so blessed? How come you're so, how come you're so happy? How come you're so filled? How, how can you be so content? How can you be so calm in, in a time of, of such dire straits? How can you have such confidence when you wake up in the morning? How can you, and, and, and all of the things that the, world's connect, that the world cannot afford you, how is it that you, Christian, can do that? And you, like the Jews could have said and should have said, it's not in me. It's in the God I serve. He gives it to me. He's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world. <laughs> now the Chinese. Oh, I'm just joking. <laughs> if you've ever seen the, you've, that made, made sense to some people in here. Um, it, it's a good movie called Rocket Man. Not Rocketeer, Rocket Man. You've got to see it. Oh, my goodness. It's funny. Here's the thing. He does, he's got the whole world in his hands. And, and he's blessing you. He's blessing me. And so we might look back at the Jews and we might look at them maybe with disdain and go, oh, look at you guys. You didn't do what God had you to do. Uh, but all we have to do, gang, is we just have to look in the mirror and say, hey, wait a minute. Am I not doing the very same thing? I'm not living the light. I'm not living according to the light. I'm not living my life under the Lord the way that he would have designed me to be in order to live in such a way that his light would shine through me? You are the light of the world, Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's what Jesus said to you and I. You're going, wow, this is a long introduction into this passage, but man, it means a lot right here. Here's what he says. He says, come out from among the world and I will be your God. The sad thing that I see in the church is that the church is not infecting the world. The world is infecting the church. So many times we go into churches and churches are nothing more than just nothing more than just a nightclub. They're everything that a nightclub is. It just has the Christian terms to it. We're becoming more like the world to attract the world into us. That's not ever been how God has ever designed. Hey, you know, you got to be them in order to attract them. Jesus, I don't believe, I don't believe that Jesus ever had to become, uh, you know, and live in a sinful lifestyle in order to attract anybody towards him. I believe that he was holy and I believe he was spirit-led. Did he become a man? Yes, he did become a man. To attract men. And when I say men, I'm saying that generically. Men and women and kids and human beings. And so here's the thing. Jesus didn't live in sin. 
And yet he attracted those who lived in sin. He didn't, he didn't, I don't know that he, he had to go out and, 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 you know, tat himself all up in order to speak to people who have tattoos. Not that I'm saying you can't get a tattoo or anything like that, but I'm just saying that Jesus didn't have to do those things in order to attract people. He could live for God as he was God in human flesh, and yet people found themselves very comfortable around him, the common person. And he came to show us the way. He came to show us that it can be done. And that's what Paul's saying. He's reiterating what Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah say. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean, and I'll receive you. I'll be your God. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. Therefore, Paul says, having these promises from God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Say, stay away from the world. Stay away from the things of the world. The world is not going to be a, a, an advantageous uh, benefit to you. It's going to drag you down. Minister to the people that are in the world, but live for God. Now, I know that the Bible says, hey, become all things. Uh, you know, Paul says, I became all things to all men that I might win some. Some people will take that and misuse that. Did Paul say, hey, I'll become a drunkard? I'll go out and, and, and start, you know, mainline in heroin because I want to reach the, the people who are stuck on heroin, addicted to heroin? I don't think that that's what he meant. Then what did he mean? I think that what, what Paul is meaning is, is that I'm not going to become a freak. I'm going to continue to be identifiable to people. I love the thing about Billy Graham, and I know that Billy Graham has gotten very old and he's no longer doing his crusades. One thing that I did see in Billy Graham, he wore a, a, a suit and he preached a simple message. And gangbangers and businessmen and bikers and goth, you know, lifestyle kids and punk rockers and you know, grunge, you know, people dig on grunge music. I, I didn't understand that. But here's the thing. They would all be coming forward and getting saved. But you know what, Billy Graham, I, I don't think he has a tattoo. How can he be, rela you know, relatable to somebody who doesn't have a tattoo? Well, you know what? You know what's relatable? Is somebody being genuine and saying, hey, this is what the word of God says and this is how much God loves you. And he wants to give you life. And he wants to give you contentment. He wants to show you what true contentment is. And you're going to be grasping for it in the world. The world will always be a carrot that you'll never be able to eat. You're never going to reach true contentment in the world. You're going to think you get it, but you aren't going to get it. Man, if I could only have. You know, you fill in the blank. What is it that you have to have in order to be content in this world? Is it a certain job? Is it a certain amount of money? Is it a certain house? Is it a certain relationship with a man or a woman? Is it a child? What is it? Is it, is it a material item? If I only, you know, fill in the blank. If I had, and, and let, let me just give you a blank check right now. Fill in the blank. 
Well, if I had a job that paid me $200,000 a year, I had a wife that loved me, I had three kids, two and a half kids and a dog, you know, and a big white house with a white picket fence, living in perfect city USA, then I could be content. Can I tell you, you're never going to reach that? You're not going to reach that contentment that way. Because there's no way that true contentment can come through things in the world. True contentment can only come from the designer of the one who designed you. That's it. You know, a a, a computer can say, hey, in my disk drive, if I could just have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I would be content. (laughs) Would a peanut butter and jelly sandwich being pushed into that disk drive, would it help that? No, it wouldn't help it at all. No, it, it's not. Uh, it's kind of a silly illustration, but you know what? We do that in our own lives. We try to put peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in things that we shouldn't be putting them in. We try to fill ourselves and our life with things that the world offers that are really never going to bring us contentment. I want acceptance, and so I want acceptance, so I'll, I'll maybe give my body, if you're a woman or a guy, you know, I'll give my body to this person because that's what they want, and I want them to accept me, so I'll give this to them. Maybe you have friends that they, they all, you know, go down bad roads, and you go, well, I want to be accepted into that group of friends, and so I need to do the same things they're doing. You're never going to find contentment there. You're going to be chasing the proverbial carrot for the rest of your life. The only contentment that you really are truly going to find is by finding it in the designer of you and of me in Christ, in Jesus Christ. That's Paul. What Paul will say in this passage is he's saying, listen, I'm, I don't know if you understood what this passage said. Paul said, here's the thing, guys. When I came to you, you got saved. I'm going to summarize this passage right now. When I came to you guys, you guys all got saved. I left, and you started to look in the world to find acceptance. And you actually had a guy that came into your house, and into the house of the church, and because you talked about, we talked about love, we talked about acceptance of people, you welcomed into your church a guy that was living and sleeping with his dad's wife. And instead of anybody confronting him about the sinful lifestyle that he's living in, you all thought that you were doing the right thing by accepting him into the church and making him feel welcome and saying, hey, you're a believer. You believe in Christ, which by all intents and purposes, Paul is talking about this guy who brought this who who started sleeping with his dad's wife, ooh, you know, sleeping with his dad's wife. He thought he was a Christian. Probably was. And, and he thought, hey, I could do that. Well, here's what was happening. He was falling back into what the world was accepting back in Corinth. That was what the worldly lifestyle in Corinth accepted. And so the rest of the church there in Corinth, they go, well, that's cool. Come on in, man. We want to fellowship with you. 
We're going to love you to Jesus. We're not, going to, we're not going to talk to you about this sinful thing that you're doing. Oh, you need to teach Sunday school? Yeah, come on in. Teach Sunday school. Not that he did. But here's the thing. They welcomed him in. And Paul says, that should not have happened. That, that's not even, that shouldn't even be accepted in the world. The world would look at that and go, yeah, that isn't right. And yet you and the church, you've accepted it in. That's not a good thing. I rebuke you guys for doing that. Don't do that. You need to set that person out of the church. If in so many, if, if he doesn't receive you, then you need to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul would be saved. That's what you, you do with this person. And that sounds very harsh for a church to do. It's not an easy thing to do something like that. But here's the thing. Paul wrote that to him. And he was a little frustrated. He wrote it to him, and he was, he was sad that he wrote it to them. You see what it said here? He says, uh, in verse 8, Even if I've made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. Did you read that when I read that the first time and go, well, what do you mean? Did you regret it or didn't you regret it? Have you ever read something? Have you ever said something or written something to someone who you had to correct? You said something to somebody who you needed to correct. You needed to confront them on something. And when you walked away, you thought, man, I hope I wasn't too harsh. Man, I think I might have been too harsh. Was I too harsh? I don't know. Man, I've had to do that too many times here at the church. Did I say something wrong? Did I say something too hard? Lord, and you agonize over what it is. You do it with the right heart. You want them to be right with the Lord. You want them to be living for the Lord. And here's the thing. They're not living for the Lord. And you say some things. And sometimes you, you, you have to say some things very plainly. And sometimes you can say it pretty harshly. And you go, Lord, I believe you're telling me to do this. But Lord, I don't have this. Is, this is hard. I don't want to do this. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt any of my friends. I don't want to hurt my family. I see somebody that's living in sin. I've, I've got to do something about that. I don't want to see a, a friend or a brother or sister living in sin. I don't want that. And so when I have to go and say something, it's hard. And, and you leave and you sit there. And there are so many times. I, and listen, I'm not alone on this. I, I'm glad I'm in good company. Chuck Swindoll shared this many years ago. And it, it gave me a peace in my heart a little bit that that I have you know you you've heard the the term there's a fellowship in suffering you know there's a fellowship in suffering Chuck Swindoll had said you know the worst time of my life the worst time of my week is on my drive home after every Sunday morning because I go and and I'm driving home and I can identify with this 110% I may have said that too hard. I may have not done that right. I may not have said it the right way. Man, I hope I didn't offend somebody that I shouldn't have offended. May, I hope I didn't do... I ho- and you second guess everything you say from a pulpit. There's a lot of things I'm going to be regretting when I go home today. But here's the thing. Paul says, For even though I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. The inward regret. I'm going, oh, I don't want this to hurt them. I love them too much to hurt them. And as much as, as, I, as it bothers me that I did that, here's the thing. It was not, 
He said it in such a way that I believe that the Lord had called me to do it. And when I did it, I don't regret doing what God called me to do. But in my own personal spirit, man, it was a tough thing for me to swallow. It's hard. But what he goes on and he says, but, but I perceive that the same letter that made you sorry, though it was only for a while, but now I rejoice that you were made sorry. But that you're sorry, that not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What Paul's saying is, here's the thing. I said this to you, and here's what you did that was so awesome. Church in Corinth, he says, you heard what it is that I said. You took those harsh words. And though I agonized, they didn't have email back in this day. They didn't have, you know, instant access to social media. So nobody was getting down on Paul on Facebook or Instagram or any of those things. He didn't immediately see it right after church. Paul had to wait for that letter. When we talk snail mail, man, this is snail mail. This is not, you know, airlines taking it. This is a camel, (laughs) you know, taking it to another place and to another place. And and it'll finally reach its destination, hopefully. Then it gets to that place. And then they read it. And then they do something about it. And however long it took them to do the correction, and then Titus goes to that church, and when he comes back, Paul must have been the pit, sick pit in his stomach when he sees Titus walking down the road coming to him, going, they've all taken my letter and they've rejected what it is that I said. I said it too harshly, didn't I? I, 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 I oh, man. And the agony that he had dealt dealt with for all of those weeks, if not months, that he had to deal with not knowing how they received what it was that he said was agony to him. And, And I can understand that agony. When you love sheep and you have to say something harsh to sheep sometimes, it is so, so... Oh my goodness, I can't even tell you how hard it is for me to do that. And, and, and when I do it, I feel sick. I want to just go and cry. And sometimes I have. And many times, people have walked away. And it breaks my heart. And, and it breaks my heart. Well, who do, you, who do you think you are? That you need to be the holier than thou corrector of all things. I don't know. This is just my position as a pastor. I wouldn't be worth my salt if I didn't come to you and to enemy, anybody as I even go to myself and say, hey, what you're doing is not right. Who's going to say that to you if I don't? Who's going to say it to you? Well, the Holy Spirit can't, yes. But obviously you're not listening. And so God sometimes will let bring somebody else into your past into your path and oftentimes he'll bring wouldn't it be logical for God to send your pastor to talk to you and here's the thing as, as he does as Paul did it hurt his heart it broke his heart because he loved these people so much but look at what it says it verse 11 I observed this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. You did exactly what, what I was hoping the best scenario possibly could be. You did that. 
You, you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation that you felt when you understood that what you were doing was wrong. And you felt that indignation and said, oh, wait a minute. We're not doing the right thing. And they dealt with the guy that was, you know, sleeping with his dad's wife. They dealt with it and they dealt with it immediately. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. And what vindication. Hey, I'm doing the things that God would have me to do. And I'll tell you one thing. It's good when, when it comes back on those occasions when what you've, you've done what God's called you to do and you see the good, godly result of it. And you come back and you go, not, ah, I'm vindicted. You know, I, I, there's vindication. You know, I'm justified in what I did. No, 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 no. Man, I'll tell you, there is this elation that happens in the spirit of you or of me or of anyone who, who has, has taken that road before. And, and he says, listen, in all things you guys proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. I didn't do it because the guy was sleeping with his dad's wife. Nor did I do it for the sake of him who suffered the wrong. But, but for th- that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. That I'm saying, this ought not happen in any church. I care about the church. This shouldn't be happening within the church. You shouldn't be accepting this in the church and just not deal, dealing with this amongst the believer. He says, therefore, here it is. We have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And if in anything, I have boasted to him about you. I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you and everything. Here's what it is. Titus came back. I was afraid of what he was going to say, but he came back and gave such a good report that you, you took the letter. You might have been a little upset at first on the letter, but you dealt with it and you did it in godly sorrow. You did it with godly repentance and you corrected it and you did the right thing. And you actually were comforted that you, you took correction and you, you changed and you became more godlike more Christ-like in what you were doing. And when, when you ministered to Titus that way, hey, we dealt with it. Man, I can't believe we looked past that. I can't believe that we, we thought we were doing right before the Lord's eyes. But you know what? We, we see now we weren't doing right before the Lord's eyes. And you remember this guy. They, they, they told him he had to leave the church. And he left the church And they were doing this, and Paul actually had to write this letter back to them. And he said earlier in this this letter, he says, Hey, listen, you guys got to restore that guy. What you did worked. He's sorry. He's repented. Don't keep him out of the church. It did what it was supposed to do. Welcome him back in. Minister to him and restore such a one, lest he be overtaken in his sins. Bring him back in. You guys are doing it. You're doing it. You're learning. You're learning. You're doing it. 
And so when Titus came back and said, hey, not only were they were upset at first, but then they did the work. They did what it was that they were supposed to do. And they 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 cleansed themselves and they and they worked on that guy and they ministered and they're they're doing all this stuff. Yeah, they're you know what? They're not mad at you, Paul. They're glad that you were willing to put your relationship with them on the line and say the hard things that you had to say. And they want to comfort you and say, hey, we heard you and we love you. Can't wait for you to come back. And Paul goes, I exceedingly joy do I hear, do I receive what Titus came back and said, I, I, I thought that that's the kind of people you were. I thought that that's who you were. I thought that I knew my family and I knew that you guys would be like that. But man, there was always this flesh in there that was always saying, well, they're not going to receive what you have to say, Paul. But now that you have received it and Titus has come back and said, I've now told Titus, I knew that they would do something like that. I just knew in my spirit that they would. Because you know what? I know these people and I know they're serious on the Lord. And he says, I boasted about you to Paul or to Titus. I boasted to Titus about all of you guys because I love you guys so much. I'm not ashamed of you guys, he says. I'm not ashamed. I boasted in you guys to Titus. Titus was refreshed. I'm refreshed. It worked. It worked. But what it all came down to, and this is kind of the moral of everything, isn't it? Live according to the designer. Live according to the designer. If you're living in sin, stop. If a believer is living in sin, confront him. If an unbeliever is living in sin, you need to just preach Jesus to him. You understand that? You just need to preach Jesus to him. Hey, the guy's a drunk. The guy's an addict. You've got to clean your act up and then Jesus will save your soul. No, 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 no. No, no, just present Jesus to him. You let Jesus do the cleaning. You just go and tell him about Jesus. Jesus will do the cleaning. Jesus will do the transformation. Jesus will do the work in that person's life. The only repentance that a non-believer needs to, to deal with is belief in the Lord. That's it. That's all he needs to deal with. He needs to deal with Jesus. Not with the sin that he's living in. He just needs, needs to deal with Jesus and who it is that he is and what it is that he came to do. A believer is different. A believer needs to be confronted. And when it all works, it all works. That makes sense? When it all works, it all works. And to know that you've done what God's called you to do, whether you were the, the one who had to repent or the one that had to call someone on the carpet, and it worked, even if it didn't work. Sometimes it's hard to do what God's called us to do. But when you know that you did what it is that God's called you to do, there's a, a spiritual satisfaction that you can get nowhere else when you repent before the Lord. There's no spiritual satisfaction you can get anywhere else when you confess, repent, and get right before God. It's awesome. It's awesome. Gang, that's what chapter 7 is all about in Second Corinthians. Live according to the designer and make sure that our church stays that way. That's how our church continues to grow. That's how our church continues to mature. 
Every single one of you are a coal in this church. That makes sense. No, it doesn't, because I haven't told you why. Consider every single one of us a charcoal briquette. You ever lit a fire for a barbecue? Maybe you're going to do one today. Probably not, because it's going to rain. Here's the thing. When you do, and you get all those coals together, and they begin to, to, to go on, you know, get on fire and start enraging in the fire, and after a while, you never put your meat on then, right? You always wait until what? It dies way down, and what? The coals are red hot. Have you ever taken some tongs and reached in there and grabbed one of those coals and taken them out and put them off by itself? What happened to that coal? <laughs> it's no longer red, is it? turns black and messy what happens to these coals they stay hot they stay burning burning hot they stay going pretty strong have they been weakened some but this one that's out here on their own is just gotten messy is really not producing anything other than for, you know, somebody to write on white, you know, cement. There's nothing you really have to offer. No spiritual value that you have here when you're separated and you're not living for the Lord. Spiritually, you really don't have a whole lot to to offer. The moment you take that with tongs, pick up that, that cold, dark, messy charcoal briquette, pick it up with the tongs and take it back over to the grill and you put it back in amongst all of the others, what happens? It gets hot again, doesn't it? might take a little bit, but pretty soon it's the same exact color as everything else in there. That's the church. That's our church. That's our church. There's any number of reasons why that charcoal can be separated. My whole encouragement to you is don't you be the reason for being separated from the coals I want us to burn brightly as a church I want us to burn together I want us to love Jesus together I want us to be concerned about each other's lives I want us to to be you know interested in in the hurts and the joys that's what a family does And when someone is in dire straits, when somebody is living in a way that they should not be living, wouldn't you expect a family to come alongside and say, hey man, how can I help you get out of this thing, man? This is not a good road for you to go. Those are people that care about you. The people who just let you go and do whatever you want and, ah, well, they died. Or, ah, they're they're an addict now. It's their choices. Well, you know what? It is their choices. But did you do everything you could do to minister to them? Here's the thing. As a church, that's a casualty. To the world, eh, I'll go find another brick, briquette. I'll get messy with another briquette. Here's the thing, gang. We're a church, just like Corinth. Paul, I love you guys like Paul loved his church. And man... I rejoice in you guys. I brag on you guys. I just bragged on the airplane about you guys. I bragged with a, with a woman that was coming through our house, looking at our house the other day. She, was, she you know, was asking about our church. She goes, are you guys Pentecostal? 
I said, well, I don't know, Baptists would probably call us Pentecostal. And Pentecostals would probably call us Baptist. If you're asking if we believe in the gifts of the Spirit, yes, we do. Oh, well, then you're okay. <laughs> you know, and I told her, I said, you know, if you've never been to our church, and she's from, like, Minnesota. She's from Minnesota, thinking about moving down here. I said, when you come to, when you come to Sarasota, you need to come to our church. Because you know what? We have the best kept secret in all of Sarasota. You get some great people at Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship. And a lot of people are missing out on you guys. I think that there's a lot of people in Sarasota that are missing out on who you guys are. I said, man, I love this, this congregation. you got to come and see for yourself. Here's the thing. I boast on you guys. I love you guys. But, man, we're not done yet, are we? Got a long ways to go. And we've got to live for Jesus. Amen? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these precious, precious saints. Lord, for the uh, patience that they and diligence that they had in hearing this message today. I pray, God, that it's affected not just one, but all of us in some capacity or another, Lord, that your Holy Spirit only can do in each hearer in this place. Lord, may we live for you in such a way as that we don't have to be the ones rebuked. And Lord, if we're living in some sort of sin or some sort of uh, license, that it's okay, it's not against, you're not against something that we're doing unless it's drawing us away from you. Maybe we're, some of us or someone in this room or some of us in this room are living with, with ankle weights on. We're trying to live this world in our liberty and yet it's slowing us down. God, show us what those things are that are slowing us down to becoming all that you want us to be. You are the designer. We are simply the product. May we live in accordance to you and what you've designed us to do and to be from this day forward. Oh, Lord Jesus, may you do that in this church and amongst every single believer in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. So... Did Jesus cause a change in you today? Or do you need prayer? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by visiting our website at calvarychapelcf.com or call our office at 941-926-3717. That's 941-926-3717. Again, thanks for listening to In the Word with Pastor Don.